questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Do you remember the phrase, it can always be worse? Well, imagine that everything you've worked so hard for is suddenly taken away from you. And not just that, you're also incarcerated. How would you feel? It's easy to judge and look down on someone when they're down, but it's difficult to put yourself in their shoes. Today, we're joined by a man whose journey has forever changed him. He was once a multimillionaire banker, a successful entrepreneur who started his first business at the age of 16 and went on to own and sell hundreds of residential and commercial properties. He was the CEO of a public bank holding company at the age of 35. And at the age of 44, he sold his company for half a billion dollars. But as we all know, success can be a double-edged sword. And sometimes the price paid for success is too high. Tonight's special guest is Sean Hayes, former CEO and co-founder of Allegiant Bank Corp, a public bank holding company in St. Louis, Missouri. Sean's success story took an unexpected turn when he was convicted of a felony and was incarcerated eight years later. But he has since shared the hard-earned lessons he learned from his rise and fall in the business world. Despite his past mistakes, Sean remains a prominent figure in the business world. What's interesting about Sean's story is that it highlights the importance of learning from one's mistakes. As he once said, anybody who thinks they're somehow better, more principled, or more virtuous is lying to themselves. His journey reminds us that success can be attained through hard work and innovative thinking, but also shows us that the gray areas can be treacherous. Stay tuned to hear more about Sean's story and the valuable lessons he learned from his experiences. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hostelrick. And directly from St. Louis, Missouri, his new book, by the way, is titled The Great Choice, Lessons of My Journey from Big Time Banking to the Big House and Back. And his website is seanhayes.com. Sean with a U. Sean Hayes, welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm wonderful, Mel. Thank you for having me. It's a beautiful day here in St. Louis. My pleasure. Well, Sean, your journey from a successful entrepreneur to convicted felon is certainly a unique one, and I always love these stories. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened and what you learned from that experience? Well, in, in, in your introduction, you, you, you summed it up so well that we go through life and we, we take risks, we make decisions, we work hard. but Sometimes we think we're above things, and that that's really what happened to me is I say three things happened to me along the way, and there's a story about a pilot who got in a plane in, in Los Angeles heading from Washington, D.C., and he was off one degree, and given the time and the distance and the speed, he ended up in New York, and that's exactly what I did. I spent a lifetime slowly migrating from you know, the black and white to the light gray to the medium gray to the dark gray. And then I crossed the line. And because of my past success, I thought I could justify it because I wasn't stealing money, Mel. I thought I could justify it. And all of a sudden I woke up and I knew what I was doing was wrong. I knew I was committing a felony and uh, I did not know the consequences. And that's that's one of those things. Had I known the consequences, and I'm not really talking about the consequences so much for myself, but for my family and for victims and for people that I hurt, I certainly wouldn't have crossed that line. And, and what I hope that uh, your listeners get from this, if nothing else is, it can happen to anyone. It's like I was uh, uh, talking to someone a few weeks ago in the media and they said, you know, they were delineating levels of wrong. And I said, well, yeah, I obviously, in my mind, I wasn't doing as bad as stealing money, but I was still committing a felony. It's once you cross that line, 
it just gets worse and worse and worse. And that's exactly what I did. What were the gray areas that you operated in during those years in banking? And what, what led you to make the decisions you did? Well, and I would I go back to the very beginning, and I think a lot of a lot of business people, and certainly a whole lot of entrepreneurs, I would go to my lawyers and say, and doing legal or illegal wasn't a question, but this is how you get into the gray. I would say, don't tell me I can't do something. Tell me how I can legally do what I want to do. And then I will decide if it's worth the effort and the cost. And we made many business decisions. The analogy I would draw since I was in St. Louis is it, my office is easy. You get you get on the first exit and you take I-64 to I-55 and you're in Chicago. And my lawyers would say, well, what you want to do this time, you're going to have to go to Kansas City in a car, take a bus to Des Moines, hitchhike to Minneapolis and fly to Chicago. And I would say, boy, it takes a lot of time. It takes money. I would or wouldn't do it. So as you start making decisions in that kind of vacuum where it's how can I push up against that line? So you're, you're leaving one side. You're not, you know, you're not across the line, but you're moving into the gray. And then the longer and longer you do that, like I was using the analogy of a, um, of a plane, it gets easier and easier to do. And then what happened to me, Mel, when I, when I sold out, I lost and it was time to sell. And, and, and I say that in the book and, and I meant it, but, I lost, in particular, about five people who I shared everything with for 15 years. And for 15 years, it was a lot like a marriage. It was a marriage, only a business marriage. And we ended up tired. And so I went to work for a large company. We sold out to a Fortune 200. And uh, I lost all that. I lost my ground, as I said, my ground intelligence. And then at the worst economic times in the history since the Great Depression of this country, I went back into the banking business and I didn't have those people around me. And because times were hard, I didn't hire the best professionals around me. In fact, as often as not, I didn't hire them at all. And so all of a sudden, I don't have those checks and balances. I don't have professionals. And I'm so confident in what I can do that I start making poor decisions. And then eventually I make an illegal one. So I'm trying to, to ask you some questions to set the foundations, but I really want to dissect every part of your story. This is how I like to do my interviews. But it would be interesting to, to hear more about your experience, basically how your moral compass shift over time and, and what were the warning signs that you were straying from your ethical principles? Well, I, I think the, the, the first thing was I, I didn't just wake up one day and you asked the question perfectly. It is strain. It's a slow process. Now, I'm sure for a very small percentage of people, population, you know, they're, they either don't have a moral compass or it's one that's not easy. But I had that moral compass that literally when I was a management trainee, they gave us a test. And this goes back now 40 years ago. And I argued with the instructor over the fact that it's only been there a few weeks. He said, you have to answer yes, that you stole something. And I hadn't. And I knew right and wrong so basically for so long that it wasn't just a, a slow journey. Literally, it was 27 years from the time I took that test till I crossed the line. But along that line, as I said earlier, I pushed because in most businesses, there's a lot of gray and and that's where there's higher margins, more money. And as you slowly try to seize those opportunities and greed kicks in, and that was the first moral compass, you know, as you look at the things in your moral compass, it starts to skew it, greed. And in particular, at the time, leading up to the crime with the crash of the stock market, the real estate market, and the collapse of the banking system, I lost tens of millions of dollars a month for months on end. So now I'm in, I'm panicked. And that greed and then fear, you know, most things are, are driven by greed and, greed and fear in life and in business, in your personal life and your business life. So I've got the greed thing going against me, and now I'm fear. So my moral compass all of a sudden starts to be less and less. And in fact, as I was reading um, the interviews of hundreds of people that the FBI had interviewed, a man that um, I respected, an attorney, uh, we never really got along, but uh, we had a contentious relationship. But when they talked to him about an incident, he said, Sean lost his moral compass. That was not the Sean that I'd known for 25 years. And, and that's what happened. It was that slow deterioration. And then when those big things went wrong, and the greed and the fear kicked in, it got a little easier. The other thing is pride. 
you know, I didn't want to, and this is one thing that I accept so much better after this experience, because in my mind, I, I did this. And this is a saying that many of your listeners I know have heard seldom in life. Do you realize your greatest dreams are your worst fears? Mel, I've realized my greatest dreams. And yes, I've realized my worst fears. But when I was going through this, I couldn't accept failure. And that fear of failure was one more nail in that coffin of the moral compass of, well, if I do this and I manipulate this this way, I'll buy myself time. And that's what it was about. Not money, it was time. And then it allowed me to make the money to fix my problems. And in reality, not only did I commit a crime, I bought myself 11 months and it certainly didn't allow me to fix my problems. So it's a long process, but I would say it's driven primarily by fear, greed, and pride is is what caused me to uh, skew my moral compass in the wrong way. Well, the book is all about the gray areas. What were the gray areas that you operated in during your years in banking and what led you to make the decisions that you did? I'm I'm assuming that a lot of this had to be with the recipe for disaster that 2007, 2008 brought to all of us. I mean, I suffered the consequences myself. Yeah, well, in my case, um, it started with when I first was getting ready to graduate from college, I had a professor say, Sean, you should go into banking. And I told him, I said, Dr. Johnson, of all the things my parents thought I would be, a banker isn't on their list because they were small business people and very distrustful of banks. And they'd grown up in the Depression and even more distrustful of banks. We had three safes in, in in our place because they didn't even like to put money in the bank unless they had to. But what his, his argument was, it's changing. And this was in 1982, but there was really a, a seismic shift in banking in the late 70s towards sales in a culture. And, and you can look at so many, Wells Fargo had so many cases of violating laws and of, of paying fines and and people going to prison around, around sales saying So sales culture came into a culture that was really a culture for the hundred and some years before, several hundred years before, of order taking. So I get into a business that is pretty staid and is not aggressive. And I'm that generation that they're looking to make it more aggressive. So when you come in and you're more aggressive, you naturally tend to aggressive people take more risks. But in particular, I would say, and I, I gave this example the other day. And it's this, they put in a law because there was a huge real estate crisis in this country after the 86 Tax Reform Act, a couple of thousand banks and savings and loans failed in the late 80s and early 90s. And so they changed the rules on lending money on real estate. So we made, we had a niche, we had a couple of niches, but one in particular was dealing with foreclosed and distressed property lending. And the law said you couldn't lend 100% to purchase any non-owner-occupied real estate, whether there's residential or commercial. And so we said, but there's a lot of money in that in that gray, Mel. So we went to the attorneys and they said, well, here's a way you can do this. If you, and, and we literally did about five or six things, and this is before the internet, that we did with newspapers and um, and uh, in the St. Louis County, which is a, which is a, a document that the attorneys use in the, and uh, in the city record that we built our own system that allowed us, if you came to us and said, I'm going to buy a house in foreclosure or a building in foreclosure, you had to come up with the money in less than two hours. Well, we would lend you that money. We charged you a lot of money for it. But what we did was, and this is how we got out of the gray to a large degree, and I'll get to that in a minute, is the bank that paid us off, we gave you 180 days to pay us off. The average loan paid off in about 92 or 93 days. And the bank that paid us off, if we lent you 100,000, Mel, they lent you 130 or 150 because now you owned it and it wasn't a purchase. They got an appraisal, which we couldn't get in a matter of a few hours. And it was always worth more. And we lent hundreds of millions of dollars that way over 15 years, made millions of dollars in fees and all kinds of net interest income. But that was the great. And we never, ever were rated negatively in our bank ratings. But we were constantly criticized. And every every year or so when they would come in and examine us, we spent days arguing, yes, we're in the gray. And yes, we've crossed the line according to regulation. But here's how we mitigated the risk. And so we had a culture of how could you do that? Because the margin was there. And so as you, you know, again, as you go back to that progression I mentioned earlier, 
as you start progressing, it's easier once you've done it one thing to do it in another. And we did that in other things. Ironically, and somebody pointed this out to me last night when I spoke to a group, in 1999, long before the crash, actually March 1st, 1999, we had bought a mortgage company in the summer of 94. In 97, the management had said, we want to form a subprime mortgage company. And we did that for about a year and a half. It was very profitable. And I was so scared of that business, Mel, I gave it to the management, not literally, I figuratively, we sold it to them for $25,000. And we can see if you sell the stock, you sell the liabilities that you're unaware of. And we got out of that. But a mere seven years later, eight years later, that's what the whole financial crisis was based on, was a meltdown of subprime lending. So even though I, I operated in the gray, there were some things that you know I just wouldn't accept. And that goes back to the moral compass was intact. That wasn't just about greed and money. It was about managing risks. And But when things go in against me, I lost those core values. And as you, as you quantified it, my moral compass. I remember BCCI. I remember the Resolution Trust Corporation in the early 90s, you know, until it was disbanded, um, brought back to the FDIC. Those were bad times for banking because since the 1970s, they were deregulated and they pretty much could do whatever they wanted, right? Yes. And that, that really, somebody asked me, what do you think caused 2000, 2000, um, 2007, 2008 through 10 or 11? And you hit the nail. I said it was a deregulation in the 70s, but it took 30 years to implode. So let's talk about the experience then. What changed your perspective on, on business ethics and, and what advice do you have for others navigating similar ethical gray areas? We keep using that term. Yeah, well, The first thing that I tell people is, because a lot of people say, you know, people don't want to talk about ethics. And I said, you're right. But who better than somebody who had this 25-year unbelievable run and then this horrific failure than to talk about it? And I think as human beings, we all know the stove's hot, is the analogy. But sometimes, and we should learn from that experience, but sometimes we have to touch it. And what, what I believe is we have to teach people to believe it and not touch it. And the best people to tell you that are people like myself who thought they were above it, thought they were better than, thought they were smarter, thought whatever, you know, whatever you want to put on it and got burned. And I think the societal thing, you know, I, I, about a year ago, Ernst and Young, who are our auditors um, the last six years, they paid a $200 million fine because they their people were cheating on the CPA exam, you know, at, an, an effort to cheat that was organized. We're not talking about one individual. We're talking about dozens. And I mentioned Wells Fargo earlier in this sales culture where they, um, you know, they sold thousands of people on accounts and never told them. They just signed them up because they wanted bonuses. And the incentives, one thing that I learned through this is you have to align compensation with not only results, but with the right behavior. Because so many things cross that ethical line over money, but it's because it was misaligned. And I think that was totally the case at Wells. We're going to pay you bonuses if you sell this product. Well, there weren't the checks and balances when you sold it to make sure the people you sold it to actually bought it. Or you shouldn't be rewarding people. And that goes back to the 70s in banking. Before before that, the banking job was a 363, as we used to joke when I started you know, you you um, paid 3% on deposits, you charged 6% on loans, and I didn't play golf, but the golfers teed up at 3 in the afternoon. And once you made it to where you brought in a culture of, we want to get a result, you had all kinds of issues. People made decisions like I did, the wrong decision. And uh, and I, I, I think you can only do it with making ethics one, an underlying core value that's not only trained, but reinforced from top to bottom. And then secondly, it, it has to melt in with compensation because if you're not, if you're not watching the compensation thing that your people will drive to do the wrong things to get the money. That's just a fact of life. Unfortunately. I don't know why I'm thinking of AT&T for a second. It's just like a quick diversion, quick parenthesis. As you know, you remember the AT&T when it was, the monopoly went to the Supreme Court. They disbanded it. Uh, then we got the baby bells. So I thought that was good because a monopoly is just insidious. And we had the, the big three car manufacturers. But now we have the, in my opinion, we have the three big banks. What do we have? J.P. Morgan Chase. 
We have Bank of America and we have Wells Fargo. The rest of them are just peanuts. Why is it that, you know, we have Amazon and Walmart. Why is it that in the past we were trying to disband and to make it less, you know, more competitive? But the opposite is true these days. Why do you think that that is? Well, and, and, the, and I can speak to the banking industry. It's because the Fed, and, and that's the ultimate regulator, they are trying to take the risk out of the system. And if you go back, and, and, and I'm glad that you, you remember the Resolution Trust Company, the debacle of the, of the late 80s and early 90s was, was, not, was a severe, was huge. The one of 2007, 8, 9 was horrible, but not as bad. And I, and, and, and actually, I predicted for about a year and a half that we're not going to have a real estate crisis like we did in the in the or in the mid two thousands. But we're going to have uh, some real estate problems because interest rates don't go up four and a half percent in less than a year, and commercial and residential real estate not suffer. And so, what the Fed's done since two thousand nine, in particular, is they want less banks and they want banks to look more like utilities. Now that. That's on the one side. So the, the bank on the corner is a different thing. When I was in graduate school and I graduated 35 years ago, they told us that there's a gas station on every corner now. There'll be a bank. And guess what happened, Mel? There was a bank on every corner when you looked at the world. Now then the banks are gone because you've got apps. You don't need the things that you had to do banking. People don't even need to go into banks. And so the feds, the feds changed the system. But what they've also done, and this is an interesting thing, I talked about the banking system in general. You mentioned the big three. Well, now then they're in the they're in every business they weren't allowed to be in since the Great Depression. So I think they've concentrated a lot of risk. They may have taken a lot of the credit risk out of the banking system, which was an intent. But I don't know about with securities and underwriting and all these derivatives and all these other things that they do that they haven't put a whole lot at risk in too few hands, but we'll time will tell. Well, speaking of banks, I think you need an appointment to enter the bank these days. And they really frown upon you. If you enter a branch when before they welcome you with a, with a smile, they really don't want you there. And I think also, and I'd like to get your comment on this is because of the cashless society that they want. They want just a digital currency. Right. And you, and you have that for several reasons. You have the Fed. The Fed tried 25 years ago or so to do away with $100 bills. And um, really, there was the FBI and, and that wanted it. But, you know, so much of it, we had at that time over a trillion dollars of our debt was in currency. And those of us who travel around the world, the dollar flows everywhere. So you've got that piece of it. They want digital. It's easier to track. It makes it to where they can truly catch people who are laundering money. And they figure out things that just amaze me with that. And now that when you open a bank... In the old days, they were worried about, was Sean or Mel going to write bad checks? Now they're worried, are you going to transfer money for some foreign government or some illegal operation? You know, it's a whole different thing since 9-11. So that's one reason why they want it. The other reason why banks don't want branches is that's labor. And in all those branches, you have labor. And the banking industry has, especially in my career, has done nothing but process more had larger banks with less people. So they're trying to get out of the people side. The government's trying to get in the control side because if they can see that Mel has X number of dollars in his account and he has that much in three banks, they know a lot about Mel. You can't really hide it like you used to. It's like I used, we got, we had, we got stung one time um, at Allegiant and I went to all the branches and I had employee meetings and I asked how many people had had $10,000 in cash and I think of 400 employees, maybe one raised their hand. At that time, I'd never had 5,000 in cash. So, you're, you know, that's one thing. The Fed wants to track it. The government wants to track and things like that. But the banks want less people. So they want to incentivize you. The other thing is there's a whole new competitor in the world now than there was in my career. And that's everybody in the world wants to give you a debit card, you know, a cash kind of card. And you have Zelle and Square and, and Cash App and Venmo and all these people, those weren't banks, you know, when before. And um, there's one of those that advertises a ton of, it's a green thing. And, uh, you know, they want people to get paid there. And they'll give you, if you get paid there every week or two weeks, they'll give you three days on your money, barn it for free. And that's competition of the banks and the banks that always controlled the payment system. So there's a war, a business war going on over the payment system. But at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot less branches. 
and there's going to be a lot less people working in banks and they will do everything in the world to incentivize you. I was actually at lunch today with a friend of mine that they, they were in a dry cleaning business, talk about something that's gone and drying up and gone away. And he's down to his last location and a bank wanted it. And I said, why do you think they wanted that? And Paul said, he's, and he told me the name of the bank. I said, yeah, they have four banks within about five miles. He said, yeah, they were going to close them all and put them in a 3000 foot old dry cleaners because they don't need those delivery points. And so there's a lot of things going on in banking and, and in the payment system that are, are very interesting, for especially for your listeners, no matter what industry they're in or retire or whatever else, because it's going to continue to evolve and change dramatically. Yeah, I remember some of my first jobs in the banking system, uh, you know, data entering loans and entering all the card uh, transactions every night at the banking center. That's all gone and, you know, with the advent of AI, robotics, I don't see tellers coming out in the future. Who knows? We may not even need bank managers. It's all going to be robotized. But do you think cryptocurrency is a threat to SWIFT, to the central banks and the traditional banking system? Or is this a no. Trojan horse? No, I, I think I think cryptocurrency, now a couple, you know, maybe Bitcoin, but it's just a side of legalized gambling. And I think FTX and, and the demise we've watched in the last 90 days or so is just a forerunner until you really have it regulated. And guess what? Once you have it regulated, you're back to the same people that you're trying to get away from. So I don't see my graduate school roommate is a very senior economist at the Fed. And I don't see at the end of the day them letting anything take it away. Secondly, you got to remember in this country, we've run huge deficits in my adult lives. And we need to be the reserve currency of the world because that's how we float a deficit is being the reserve currency of the world. So I think given that, we had in particular as a country an interest in not letting them rise, not letting them be seen as stable by not the, you know, the three or five percent or whatever, but by the 95 percent. Because once we lose that ability to monetize our debt and inflate it through printing money all the time, we have a problem as a country and a society. Well, as Rahm Emanuel used to say, don't let a good crisis go to waste with this FTX fallout, which is, to me, worse than the Bernie Madoff scheme. But I think they might use it to say, hey, look, you see, this is a scam. This is what we need, FedCoin. And they'll have their own cryptocurrency. What do you think? I think you hit the nail right on the head. And it's coming. And they will figure out a way. Then now we're in control. You people that wanted a cryptocurrency, you got it. You people want regulation, you got it. And we control back to what I said. Now we're allowed to float our own crypto coin and therein lies the ability to print money. I don't want to deviate too much from, from your story, but it's important because I want to pick your brain. I'm being selfish here, Sean, so bear with me. $31.5 trillion, the U.S. debt. Your opinion on this and how sustainable is this? Well, I, in the book, I talk about Crosby Kemper was my first mentor, and he thought the world was ending 40 plus years ago. And so I mentioned in graduate school, I, I, I had this uh, unbelievably intelligent roommate, and I said, you know, my CEO just thinks the world's going to end. And he said, Sean, he's, he said this, he said, we're going to monetize the debt. It's never going to matter. And I said, I went to undergraduate University of Missouri. I'm in over my head in graduate school to begin with. What does that mean? He goes, we're going to, we're always going to have inflation. And if you go back to the 2008 crisis, what did they do? They printed money. Now we didn't get inflation, but they did everything in the world to cause it. And thus they invert, they, they, they kept us from having deflation in reality. And guess what we're getting now? We're now getting that plus the money that was printed at the time of COVID. I don't know how a country on a sustainable basis can run a deficit that I remember it was horrific when it was four trillion and nine and ten trillion. There is a point where it kicks in. The good news for us is, is that, um, and I wish I could recall this book, but I read a book a little over twenty years ago that talked about the demise of China at the mid twenty first century, and I think we're going to see it maybe before mid mid twenty first century. But the the country that would come along and replace us isn't there. And I don't see it on the horizon, but you can't do this till the end of time. And there will be a day of reckoning. I just don't know if it'll come in my lifetime or not. Sean, how do you define smart risk taking? And how can 
entrepreneurs differentiate between smart risks and dangerous decisions? Well, one, you should never do anything that's not legal. That's the first risk. You know, criminal risk is not a risk that should ever be acceptable. Secondly, you know, you have to look at what I, I, I look at the risk and the return. And, uh, you know, up until the last 12 months or so, holding cash looked pretty stupid because cash was worth nothing. And so I think you constantly have to reevaluate. And I'm using simple terms here because in business, nothing's ever as simple as cash or not cash. But the, but the point is you constantly need to evaluate and you need to be no different than a good investment manager says, you know, you need some in stocks, some in bonds, some in alternative and some in cash. As an entrepreneur, you need to constantly, you need, you need to do things that have a higher risk and a higher return and things that have a lower risk and lower return. But over time, you can't run any business, and I don't care what it is, in the high-risk sector. You know, time, everything regresses to the mean at some point. And so, but you, but you have to look and say, what makes sense today? Because I did, when I sold my bank, I did what two generations and maybe three generations of banks had done before, certainly the two before. And that is, we sold to a double-A credit, S&P, Fortune 200, 100-plus billion-dollar bank. So I didn't sell any of my half million shares because it was a tax-free exchange and my dividends were 150000 a quarter all of a sudden. And I had a currency I could borrow against. That at its time was perceived to be a smart risk. In reality, I was no better off than the man who had the buggy company at the end of the 19th century or the person that had the rail car business in the mid-20th century. And that's why you have to constantly reevaluate what is a smart risk? And you can never box yourself in a corner. And very, very few companies make it to the third or fourth generation. But those who do almost always are not even doing anything that mirrored what they did 50 or 100 years before. In many cases, not even 25. When you were growing up, very similar to me, my parents were involved in small business. Parents had a hardware store, correct me if I'm wrong, a motel. Uh, what else did they have? A restaurant? Also, my parents, yep. I was in the it's restaurant hard. business myself for 24 years until recently. So you learned a lot. Just give us, give us some of the lessons you learned there that you applied in a macroeconomic level later. Well, I think the most important thing in business that I learned, and I didn't figure it out until I'd been out of school 15 years ago, business is all about people. I don't care what business you're in, even if you have artificial intelligence and robots, at some point, you have people involved. And if you don't have good people and you don't invest in your people, and I loved it in the late, in around 2000, the tech companies all said, you know, our company walks out the door every night. I told a friend of mine who had a big manufacturing company with a lot of robotics this way the day, I said, Marvin, your company walks out the door every night. It's all about people. And I learned my parents, my dad was a world champion boat racer and they wintered in Florida. And um, I was, way too little to remember this, but I heard the story a lot as a, as a teenager and a young adult. Um, they had a woman manage the motel and restaurant. And uh, now you remember, this is before credit cards. This is the early 60s. And, uh, you know, they had, you know, there was a Bank of America card then, and I think a diner's club, but, you know, most places didn't take them. You didn't need to. And they came back from their three months sabbatical in Florida. And the woman running it said, okay, I'm going to quit now. And you see that new Ford out there? I stole enough while you were on yep. Florida to buy that and you can't prove it. Well, you had the wrong person and you have to constantly evaluate and you have to constantly invest in your people or you're going to get the wrong result. I've never seen a company fail because it had a bad plan. It was usually because it was poorly executed and you get what you pay for in life. And I don't necessarily mean in salary, but I mean in time that you invest in those people and in money and in educating them. As a, an entrepreneur myself, I, I hate the fact that they might one day take cash away. But at the same time, and I've had those stories happen to me, where I go with my wife on a business trip or, or a vacation, and I come back, and I'm like, what happened to the all the week's deposits? Well, I took them in my car, and the, the car was impounded because this and that, and lying, of course, fired the <laughs> manager. And you know those stories repeat again and again. So I think sometimes cash is not my friend. I want people to pay with a credit card, but I'm in the middle of that. 
because I don't want to deal with the cash. I used to have a vending company where there was 100% cash. But at the same time, then credit cards take away the, the freedom that you have and the untraceable aspect of your life. It's funny. It's funny you're saying that one. I think we might be related because my uncle was in the vending business, <laughs> but um, and and I ran vending machines in college, which is a whole other. I didn't even cover that in the book. But um, here's here's what I was with a, a friend of mine who has a very successful um, restaurant, sports bar kind of concept in a suburb in St. Louis. And it was Sunday, and he, I said, "What are you going to do?" And he said, "I got to go to the bank tomorrow." And I said, and he told me what a guy had told me in a, that owned a successful bar in St. Louis about seven or eight years before. It in the old days. Those places generate all this cash. Now then, they have to go to the bank and get cash to tip out. Yes, exactly. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I'm a friend for a little cash isn't a bad thing. A lot of cash is a problem. But when you get in the food service business, I made a loan one time to a guy. There's a local Italian um, franchise operation here, a little niche business. And um, for for years, there uh, there's a Northwestern Mutual man who sold all three of the principals. Life insurance was a very good friend of him. And he came to me and said, Sean, they're going to let me have this great location as a franchise. And they've given me one of their best managers to run it. And I looked at him and I said, Mark, we're going to lend you the money because you have great credit. You have other non, you know, non-related income. And we're going to take a second on your house. But do you really, really, really want to do this? Because the restaurant business is seven days a week, 20 hours a day. And you have to be there. You can't. And you're going to be out selling life insurance. Goes, yeah, but I got this great manager. So a few months into this place opening, I parked up the street, not to see him, but I had a meeting and I park at meters because I'm cheap. It's cheaper in a garage. And um, I'm walking down the street and I'm near the back of the restaurant and a man walks out with two boxes of chicken breasts in the middle, you know, like at one thirty in the afternoon. Well, it wasn't long before Mark closed. We had to, you know, now make his house loan into a mortgage to bail him out of it. It's such a brutal business that um i i don't know I, you're you have a lot more respect i i didn't realize the restaurant side of this y you're quite an entrepreneur yourself if you survived all these years in the restaurant if you ran a restaurant that long you're you're quite a business person then that's just what this is why i'm bringing the cash part up because imagine crime crime you know you have all these liquor stores and and gas stations that take cash and you, a lot of the muggings happen at night what if they said no more cash it's only credit cards. What would happen to crime? Um, well, one, I would agree it would dissipate, but you and I know it's never going to go away because it's been around for 10,000 years. And uh, there would be, you know, something would trade for something. They would figure it out, you know. Um, I'm playing but, devil's uh, advocate. They, they, they probably want, want to come and take your inventory and your food and all that, but I'm just playing devil's advocate here because yeah. I see both sides of the coin. I just don't like it. Uh, for a, a a government that should be fearing us, not us to them, to be tracing every move that we make. I mean, I know I knew this in the '90s when I was doing my master's. When my professor told me, "Look, insurance companies are already collecting all your information. If you go to the pharmacy and you buy a bottle of rum or vodka, whatever, that goes into the insurance company, and they reserve the right in a year or two to say, you know what, you're drinking. We're not going to renew your policy.'" I don't like that that sort of uh, surveillance that we are all going through right now. No, it's 1984 for real. Yes, but uh, I um, I don't know. It, it, it'll be. I think in in our lifetimes, cash will disappear. Um, you know, not completely, almost completely. And like I said, 25 years ago, 26 or seven years ago, they want to do away with hundred dollar bills because that made the ability to conduct illegal activities harder and harder, you know, and because, uh, you, you know, you're now talking suitcases and not briefcases to move money. Yes, yes. And by the way, thinking of the consolidations that our bank have been taking, you know, in the past uh, few years, I also see that. And again, I don't mean to deviate. I apologize, Sean, but the medical industry, I have friends who have successful private practices of you know, their medical doctors, dentists and, and others, and they're all selling some company has come to them offering millions of dollars, saying, stay on board for two, three years. We're buying this for millions of dollars. And they, they, it's a sweet pair, you know, a golden parachute for all of them. I don't think they want any private practices in the future for doctors. I, I think you're honest. In fact, if you really go back a little over 20, about 25 years ago, it started in the medical business. I tell this story because 
I never liked doing business with doctors or athletes or entertainers. Athletes, entertainers, because they were lousy business people, unbelievable talent. I love to watch or listen to them or see them, but I don't want to do business with them. But doctors, because they they were they're very un- unbelievably intelligent people, and they think that go- cuts across your, their entire life. But I watched doctors in the late 1990s and selling, just doing exactly what you're monetizing their practices. But if you go back to 1990 with dentists, we didn't bank a dentist in 1990 that made more than 125 thousand a year. And I'm I'm not talking specialists here. I'm talking your standard internal medicine doctor. They made a quarter million dollars to to say 400. Okay, by the end of the by the end of the 1990s, we didn't have a dentist who made under a half a million. And most of them made 700 to a million. And the doctors were still making that same 250 to 400. If you go to fast forward now, 20 some years later, dentists, unbelievably profitable. Now, what you said is starting to happen to them. Doctors, again, if you don't have a specialty, are still in that 250 to 400. And I think what's happened is, and I don't like the control that we didn't even touch on that, but briefly, but what you have in the medical industry now is, is you have these doctors are really just, for a better word, they're factory workers, they're a service provider for a multi-billion dollar company. And and, and you're going to see that happen in dentistry too. So I don't think the result was good. And the price hasn't gone down because I had my second bout with cancer. And my first four days was $108,000. And I mean, it's just amazing to me how much money it cost. And I'm, I'm thankful they did a great job. But I, they spent a quarter million dollars. I had a quarter million dollars in insurance claims in a less than six-month window. So that that's way above the rate of inflation between... You know, even 2011, the first time I had it. So, no, I see that as a conglomerate control. And just what you said about the insurance companies, the healthcare companies know everything about you. And they're going to continue to know more as free as information flows in our society. I think it's a step closer to socialized medicine. But what are the most significant challenges facing? And we know, as entrepreneurs, we know that there's a lot of challenges. But the challenges that are facing today's entrepreneurs, and how can they navigate these challenges successfully? Well, the, I always tell people, surround yourself with a good attorney, with a good accountant. You have to have an IT you know, person or social media, whatever you're going to put with that. Insurance, you have to manage your risk. You have to get those people around you. And the other thing is, is find people who know what you don't know. And I always encourage people. When I first um, got out of the management training program and came to St. Louis, I ended up on the board of a company at the time that was 90 years old. And they had a board in those days. They even had the banker. The bank had, I was their bank's representative. It had nothing to do with me. They put me on there. And they constantly picked people's brains who weren't directly in their industry because, you know, so much business goes across all industries. And especially if you pick people who don't know what you know. And if it's in your industry, if you pick someone who's retired or sold their company, and you don't have to pay them a lot of money. You don't have to give them. A lot of people are looking for something to do. A lot of people want to give back. And a lot of people want to be mentally challenged. You know, they, they, they see it keeps them sharper. And you need to, the first thing I tell people who are starting a business or trying to scale it or trying to get a little hockey stick effect is get some people around you to give you advice. Because the best thing that happened to me was I talked about five people. None of those five people who had such a huge influence in my life and my career and my success had ever worked an hour in a bank. And one thing, Mel, they constantly asked me was, why do you do this the way you do it? And if I ever said that's because we've always done it that way, guess what? We dissected that till we changed how we did it. And that's a unique thing because most of us, if we work for ABC and we go out and start XYZ, XYZ is really a derivative of ABC. We take a lot of that, as I call that culture. You know, in the beginning, my bank had a lot of UMB culture. The first people I hired were what's now Bank of America at the time was Boatman's. And we looked a lot like a modified UMB Boatman's with a little bit of Allegiant. And you you need that cross-pollinization of culture and of ideas and of intelligence and experience. And so you really have to surround yourself. And I don't care if you're a solopreneur, you know, someone who's solo. You need those people in your life and around you. And the beautiful thing with today's society, they geographically don't be, have to be close. I was involved in a, in a software company in the early and late 90s. And we had a guy from Scotland who was a genius who had to fly over once a quarter and a company paid for it, but it was worth it. Today, you can do it with Zoom. 
You know, there's there's so many things that technology affords. I have believed for the last 30 years, technology is the benefactor. The, the, the small business is a benefactor of technology because you don't have huge investments in systems. So use, a, use technology to build your company and to bring intelligence into it that you couldn't have gotten a generation ago. Your story includes obviously a journey towards redemption. How did you come to terms with your past mistakes and, and start rebuilding your life? What role did forgiveness and self-reflection play in this process? Well, when you spend 37 months institutionalized, you have a lot of time to think. And um, I had my nephew, I have two, I have one sister and, uh, and she had two sons. One's uh, Brant Snedeker, who one, and, and you're out in Phoenix, correct? Close, yes. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I, the area, remember, I'm still an area code person. I said that and I thought, oh my gosh, you could be in New York today's world. But um, I tell that because he was a PGA rookie of the year in 07 and he won the FedEx in 12. But his first year that he played in the waste management on 17, they sang his high school fight song to him. But the other nephew, if you read my book, cost me about $10 million and then went on to build, he's an Inc. 500, the company does a half a billion now. But he wrote me a letter, Mel, and this was the beginning of redemption for me. And I got it literally about three days before I was sentenced. And I'd been incarcerated for over a year already. And thank God that time counts. And he said, Uncle Sean, everybody loves to watch someone start with nothing and rise like you have. But we live in a society where they really love to watch you crash and burn and you've fallen. But there's nothing more that they love. And Tiger Woods was just coming back this before the automatic when somebody that's risen and fallen and comes back again. And so I knew I wanted to, but that was the inspiration for me saying, I have to. And then I said, okay, at my age and all these other things, what can I really do? And I said, I've got all this experience and all this knowledge that men and women over decades invest me from coaches to managers, to associates, to partners, directors, clients, all kinds of people. I need to take and look at that. And how can I take that and help, as I said to you before the show started, and help one person not cause the carnage to their personal life, those they love, and to other people like I did. And so that's where I get my redemption. And last night, I had the privilege of talking to 20-some graduate school students. And when I was done, the instructor has known me for a long time and it could not have been more gracious and kind and said, you're the kind of person we need to communicate ethics and decision-making. And really that's what my book's about is decision-making because it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to come in and look at somebody with, you know, in flesh and blood and talk about their failures. And I always used to say when we were raising money, everybody tells you about their success. No one admits that they made an investment that's a failure. And do I like having this huge failure, this red scarlet? No, but I'm going to do something with it. And that's where I find my redemption. Truly, Mel, is in helping others avoid what I went through. I think also social media exacerbates this a lot these days. I mean, you can't, if you admit it, look, I made a mistake or uh, the economic forces were working against me and I had to sell this property and I had to sell my car to get a, or a smaller home. There's nothing wrong with that. But society makes it in a way these days where social media wants you to always, grass is always greener. Uh, keeping up with the Joneses, all that. But you said that you spoke with some graduate students yesterday. What advice would you give to young entrepreneurs who are just starting out and may be tempted to cut corners or make unethical decisions for short-term gains? And I get a lot of email from people who know my story and they write to me with advice and I tell them, don't cut corners, tell them. No, and, and that's exactly what... And, and I have a video out on this, and it's back to my two nephews, and I call it the tortoise and the hare. The tortoise always wins a race. And don't be tempted to turn from your moral compass and, as you said, make that quick decision to get that quick. Because, and you said it a moment ago in the most articulate way, social media shows everything today. And there is no dark corners in this world anymore. You may think there is. Or as I... As I thought I had one, it only lasted for, you know, a very short period of time and I didn't get what I wanted. And you just can't do that. You have to stay true. If, if you truly are an entrepreneur, you stay true to what you, you have to be passionate. You stay true to what you believe in. And there are days and there are weeks and there are months and there are sometimes years where 
it's going to be, you know, and, and ready or it's going to be bad. And, and, you know, you're going to make tough decisions that are not fun, that are hard. And a lot of companies are doing that right now. You know, they're letting people go. They're going against what they they're doing, things they never thought they would do. And literally in the last 15 years, most people never had to do. But doing those things will make you a better company, will make you a better entrepreneur, will make you more successful. Not that you're not kind and compassionate. I'm not saying that. But you have to do those things because cutting corners and doing something that you think is is knowing it's wrong, especially, but knowing you think in the short run, it's going to go unnoticed. It will come out and it will bite you. And it's always at the worst possible time. There's never a good time, though. My motto in life is always slow and steady. It's better to move slow than not move at all because of the fear of failure. But one thing, again, another parenthesis, but one thing I could never understand is when I saw my first in accounting school and, and finance and all that and working for a major financial company, I would look at the balance sheets and I would always say, wait a second, where, where is the staff on the asset side? Oh, no, 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 that should not be part of that. Why not? If you have people with a thousand years of experience or of whatever, shouldn't that be, oh, but that's goodwill. I never understood that, Sean. No, and, I, and that's why I said earlier, it's all about people. And that's what I, after we covered the ethical thing, because they wanted to talk, their, their request for my talk was business. We want we to talk about entrepreneurship and we want to talk about ethics. So they bifurcated it. And when I was talking about entrepreneurship, I just kept going back to, it's about people. It's about people. It's about people. And you get, you got it right. And unfortunately, I don't think goodwill has anything to do with people, you know, because I, I, I have enough accounting and I've ran a public company. And quite honestly, we did, when we did acquisitions, we avoided having any goodwill because in the banking business, they deducted that from your equity. So we made decisions intangible, yeah. To, yeah, to, to minimize it because intangibles, is, is, and you, you framed it correctly, were negative because that, that meant we had an equity issue or we had to have more equity. So they they don't address that at all, in my mind, in the P&L and in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the balance sheet. And of course, in the P&L, what does everybody focus on? How much money are you spending? You know, they're looking at compensation, all those things. And I'm not talking about the exorbitant compensation that we see in public companies. I'm talking about they're looking at how can you have less of that? When a lot of times, you know, it's like a friend of mine who's run successful small businesses for 40 years. And he says, Sean, he goes, if in any business that I've ever really been close to, 40% of your money better be in sales and marketing. And we try to cut costs. And that's a cultural thing the last 40 years that, like all good things, has an upside and a downside. And a whole lot of good people, uh, you know, are just become numbers. And that's not a good result for society, for the company, and certainly not for the individuals. Well, I think the big pharma should learn a little bit of that formula. Uh, what, what is the, the ratio when it comes to research and development versus marketing? But that's for a different show. Uh, one of the things in your story, Sean, is the importance of accepting responsibility for one's actions. How do you navigate the process of admitting your mistakes and facing the consequences of your actions? Well, I had, you know, grown up as a person, you know, this is a different part of your, you know, this is not the kind that led me to make the decision, but I'd always taken responsibility. And through this, I've had a lot of people uh, like, like yourself ask a question like that. And I think they expected me to blame my code of, to blame. There's no one, it always, at the end of the day, in my mind, and I was raised this way, you're always responsible yourself. I do not like a victim mentality. We live in a victim society. Very seldom in business are you a victim. Now, I'm not saying that in, you know things don't happen in person, but you usually made a decision, or in my case, I made decisions that got me the result that put me where I was. And you have to own it, and I own it. You know, Do I wish I hadn't done it? Absolutely. But then I also say this, Mel, I, I wouldn't change anything. Because I took one engineering class in college and it was on process and engineering and manufacturing. And, you know, if you change one thing, you change everything. I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't have the experiences I've had. Do I wish I would have hurt people? Absolutely not. But I know that when you make those kind of decisions and you don't take responsibility, then you shouldn't be making those kind of decisions. You should just go to work for somebody and, and be a drone and let somebody tell you what to do. And what I love about this country and what I believe still differentiates it from the rest of the world is, is people get up every day and decide to be entrepreneurs. And I, a friend of mine posted um, a thing this week 
on LinkedIn about all the tech cuts, and um, and his and his premise was identical to mine. That, and I reposted it actually and said, "Here comes a whole new generation of entrepreneurs, because you've got all these bright young men and women who are now cut, and a whole lot of them will go do something they would have never done because they're given the chance." And those are the people who are responsible kind of people. You can't be an entrepreneur and not take responsibility. That's not, those two things are not correlated. You've got to be a responsible person. And that's what your people look for. And that's why I tell people, even those who don't want to be entrepreneurs, but I remember in the 80s when I started working in the corporate world, the office I used to work at had 85 people a year before. And then when I started, only 15. What happened to them? Personal computers came along. So they had to retrain themselves, learn a new trade. However, right now it's different. What are these people who are going to be displaced by AI going to do, Sean? You know, I, I, I don't know, but it goes back to what I said. I have faith that we have, uh, we still have, not to the degree, the degree that we were younger, but we still have a society that's so creative and so adaptable. And, um, you know, I can remember we had floors of nothing but hardware. I tell the story when I was a manager trainee 40 years ago this summer, one night, I got some of the best advice I ever got from a woman who was a secretary who was getting ready to retirement. She was 40 years old, but I operated a copy machine that was the size of my kitchen, you know, to take, make my copies for the morning meeting. And she was in there doing them for executives, but I had to do my own. And then look at that copy machine. I can do, you know, I, 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 I copy everything on my phone. Somebody the other day said, my son wants to send you a letter. I said, he wants to truly write it. I said, have him write it, text it to me, and I'll print it myself. So technology and innovation will overcome that. But there's always disintermediation. And that's the problem. And that disintermediation is usually directly correlated with individuals or families or lives. And we live in a society where, I, I told this story this week, we, we had one of the lowest loan loss ratios of any bank. We were considered risk takers. We operated in the gray. I told you that earlier. But most banks in our peer group lost one to one and a quarter percent of their total loans every year for those 15 years. We averaged 0.28. So we were one fifth to one fourth their loss rate. Okay, that's pretty darn good. But I can tell you, when we lost money, Mel, it was divorce, alcoholism, drug abuse, and gambling. You can't legislate morals. And when you have this kind of disintermediation, more people self medicate. And there's a societal cost that's huge. In a, and we have that out there today. And, um, and I don't know the answer. And by the way, you hit the nail on the head when, you, when it comes to China. And this might offend some people, but I don't care. They claim they will overtake the United States as the strongest economy in the world. And the only reason why they're heading there is because our so-called leaders have enabled that. But in communism, you don't have any creativity. You only cheat, steal, and copy things. So if we separate ourselves and allow ourselves to bring big pharma back here, to, to manufacture here, they'll die. It's just that we're giving them the rope. Where are we going to be hanging ourselves if we keep it up? Well, I think we have to. I think, and, you know, it's, it's, it's onshoring now and all this stuff. It has to come back here because, you know, the biggest Apple factory in the world is there. Yes. And you, you don't think they don't steal. You know, you don't think they, you know, in, 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 20 million feet of space. You don't think they don't have 2 million feet of spies going through every piece of technology <laughs> that they're looking at. I mean, if we, if we don't think that there's something wrong with this country, I think that you, you're again, you're, I completely agree with everything you just, in fact, as a friend of mine was, I passionately agree with you, Mel. Here's what that I read. And then I was in China in 2010 and I'll tell you an interesting story because I was there with a bunch of CEOs of very large companies. And, um, demographics are against them. I don't, I'm not saying they're going to have a revolution, but I don't know how they can keep it going. And when I was there, we went in a park one day in a beautiful park in Shanghai and one in Beijing. Everybody in there was in their fifties because they made them retire. And we had two guides in that 10 day period. The first guide, uh, my wife didn't want to go. My oldest son went and he was in his twenties and out of school. And he asked the guide, we were in Tenement Square. We were in, in, in he goes, where were, where were the tanks? And you know what she said? This is in 2010. There were no tanks. Now, come on. <laughs> you might have said that 1950, but not 60 years later. So the next five days, we had a different guide. And the CEO of Edward Jones asked this question at dinner one night. 
he said to this gentleman, he said, uh, let's talk about China. And this guy was very open. And he said, here's what I'll tell you. My parents were both school teachers. They're in their upper 50s. They're retired. They live in a 600 square foot condo. I live in a 1500 square foot condo. I make 130,000 US. Now you hit the nail on the head. But by the way, the government only counts my 30,000 equivalent in salary. They don't pay the tips that people like you pay me. He goes, I have a brother who works in the equivalent of the IRS. He has one child because he works for the government. He goes, because I'm out on my own, I can buy another child. And I did. I have two children. I had to pay the equivalent of $15,000. And then, and then John asked him this question. He said, tell us about the elections. He said, gentlemen, I know we have them, but I've never known when. I've never known who was running, and I never have known where to vote. He said, but I will tell you this. If my children don't live in a nicer place and make more money, we have a problem as a society. And you just laid out why they will have a problem as a society. It's not only in China. It happens in every communist country in the world. In Cuba, you go to a restaurant and you talk to the your, your waiter and he tells you that he was a doctor. And he's making, you know, a hundred times more than he was making as a doctor, as a waiter, because he makes tips at taxi drivers. And I hate to even say it, but even prostitutes have to go that route in order to survive. It's uh, and just surprised that people still want to test that miserable doctrine that has killed 150 million people. Well, we have to take our one and only break. We have so much to discuss. I want to discuss your time in the big house, too, and what you've learned from that experience. How can people buy the great choice lessons on my journey from big time banking and the to the big house and back, Sean? Well, you can go to my website and you click, or you can go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, many, many retails carry it, and uh, I think I think you'll find. And we just came in out a week, so we've got some great reviews. But it, people say it's an entertaining read, but it's also very raw and very to the point. So I I hope your listeners take time to read it. It's a wonderful book, and I didn't think it would be as good as it turned out to be. I'm very self depreciating when it comes to that. You wrote it from the heart, and as you said, a lot of people listened because. You are the real deal. You, you're a human being. We all make mistakes, and you pay for that mistake, and now you're sharing your story of redemption with the world. So one more hour to come with Sean Hayes. This is Mel Hustlerick, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the members section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at VeritasRadio.com. Subscribe today. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, Just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share the video. Click on the notification button to be alerted when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know.